Welcome to Outside the Lines, the podcast of our host, Bob Cheviar, and his co-host, Scott Shannon. Bob and Scott are longtime teaching pros in Westchester County, New York. They have both been ranked in the top 15 nationally in men's 35 and 40 and over singles and doubles. Bob is also the author of Deconstructing Tennis, the 4D System. Together, Bob and Scott investigate many of the hidden secrets of playing good tennis, as well as offering their expert commentary on professional tennis. Hi, all. It's Bob Chevier here, the host of Outside the Lines. I'm here with my co-host, Scott Shannon. And I think everyone's probably recovered from all the exciting tennis that we got to watch a couple of weeks ago at the U.S. Open. And what Scott and I decided we'd like to do is let you get to know both of us a little bit better by telling about some compelling matches that each of us were a part of, uh, because at least I, I, I know from both of our ends, there was some compelling drama going on uh, in terms of winning, losing, and some other things surrounding the court. Now, just this weekend, there was a big tournament at Chestnut Ridge, Century Men's Doubles, and I happened to sit next to a gentleman who's a high school coach like Scott is right now. He knew Scott very well, and he asked me the million-dollar question for this podcast. He said, hey, Bob, who, who, who was a better player? Was it you or Scott? And I had always for years, I mean, so many years, thought that we were even in terms of our accomplishments on the court. However, I was going through my old ranking books uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I saw like, ooh, boy, Scott was actually a half step ahead of me in terms of his ranking accomplishments, being a member of the top five at times when maybe I was number 13 or 14. So head to head, I think we were even like two and two, one singles win, one doubles win each. Um, but um, I think overall, just a little stronger for Scott. So when you hear our stories, uh, Scott, why don't you answer this for our listeners before we get into telling about our matches? How good were we? Um, first of all, Bob, uh, I got to say that um, it was always going to be a hard day for me to beat you on clay or outdoors where uh, the elements would kind of slow my ball down a little and I couldn't just pound serves and come in and put away volleys. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I did have some... Uh, you know, some ranking years there where I was in the top 10 in the East for five years in a row and, and some of those things that you saw. But uh, I would say I would say that that probably was because you were getting a little bit more into your, uh, you know, teaching part of your career, uh, you know, a couple year, a couple because I think you're a year or two older than I am. So I might have been just playing uh, a little bit more at that time. So I think that uh, the even comparison is uh, quite accurate. So. Uh, you're uh, too kind. Uh, so but, we're each going to take like three or four matches that were meaningful to us or set us on a different career path, for example, or something like that. And Scott, I'd like you to start it off. Why don't you tell us and 
we're trying to go in reverse order. So we're building like to a crescendo towards the end of the podcast. So start with a memorable match, but maybe not the most memorable one. Um, yeah, I would say that, uh, you know, going back to a couple of years being out of college and then just getting, um, being more like a double specialist then, and then just getting my singles game together uh, slowly. Um, I graduated from college in 74, but by 1978, I had already gone to, uh, I'd already gone to Europe and played uh, on the qualifying circuit for the ATP. And one of my most memorable matches from that six weeks First of all, I have to tell the listeners that I only won one match in six <laughs> weeks. But what I gained as a student of the game and as a tennis player um, was just incredible how valuable it was. So the, the losing of, of all those weeks was totally learning experience. And it was the fact that I was there and competing and observing uh, that really helped me. And so when I came, so one of the matches that really made a big difference and was kind of fun was when you get on the court with, um, with players who are, you know, at that point a little older and had been top ranked, uh, Tom Carey and I played in the main draw at Oviedo in Spain, and we played Jan Kodis, who had won Wimbledon a couple of years earlier, and Raul Ramirez, who was currently ranked sixth in the world, and they they were a doubles team uh, against us. Uh, so we were very like nervous uh, and giving these guys way too much credit, but they were very, very good players, but, you know, Everybody hits the ball and hits it, hits it over the net, and then you can return it. It's not like you were playing Jimmy Connors and, you know, hitting, he's hitting the ball so hard and whatever that you can't even, like, catch up to it. Um, but we lost the first set six love, and it was mostly because we couldn't get the return of serve over the net. And neither of those, goes, those guys had huge serves. But um, at the beginning of the second set, I turned to my partner, Tom Carey, and I said, Tom, this is just ridiculous. We are just like not playing tennis. We're not like giving them anything to, uh, you know, to, to deal with over there. I said, let's start playing tennis. And so within the next couple of games, Ramirez was serving to me in the ad side. And Codis looked like he was falling asleep at the net, so bored with these these Americans who were over here, what the hell were they doing? You know, wasting my time. And um, I decided that if I got the right kind of serve, I was just going to just cannon the ball right at CODIS at the net and see if I could wake him up. So Ramirez hit this like, you know, three quarters, you know, he wasn't a big server, but he was a good server and he hits it to my back end and I just turn as much as I can. And I hit it as hard as I could. And the ball was definitely going in. It was a good shot, but it was so hard. And it was right at Codis's midsection. <laughs> and he kind of like just jumped and, and tried to get his racket on it. I think he framed it or whatever. And then he cursed at me in Yugoslavian for, for at least like 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Probably Czechoslovakian, but yes. 
Mm -hmm. um, so, so we lost that set by one break, six, four. So we were, you know, we were in that set, so to speak. One break is not like a huge difference. So when you asked earlier about like how good were we, you know, we were, were pretty good. Sometimes we didn't give ourselves uh, a chance to be as good as we were because we hadn't been playing like international junior tennis or I wasn't even playing like national level or playing national tournaments as a junior in the United States. So at the uh, age of, of 20, you know, four of 25, um, I was new to the whole thing playing uh, against these top players in the world. So some of it was, you know, a lot of it was mental and we had to get over that. Well, I like that part of your story where you and Tom said, let's go play tennis because frequently uh, my students will say to me, gee, I'm just, I can't get it going. What do you say to yourself when you can't get it going? And I said, well, one of the things I used to say was, let's play tennis. <laughs> right. and and it, it, it that says resonates. It, 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 says, it says it all, right? Without having, without having to get in the details of like, get the ball over the net and start mm -hmm. making the other guys play. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So uh, that's a really great story about how to respond to that pressure of being up against a couple of the best players in the world. Um, my number four match was from 1980 when I played doubles at the New Jersey State Men's. And that was particularly meaningful for me because I grew up in New Jersey. I was a state high school champion in New Jersey, played number one at Rutgers and number two a little bit. Um, and but then I moved to Westchester as a teaching pro and I wasn't around the Jersey scene that much. So it was always really important to me when I went back to my home state to see that I could produce and show that I was a good player. So I was ending up, I'd ended up, I played doubles with Jeffrey arts, my longtime teaching compatriot at Chestnut Ridge. And we were really a pretty good team. Uh, one thing that was going on though, for this was following my senior year of college, when I had my first knee operation, I would go through time periods where my knee just wasn't functioning the way it needed to, to play my best tennis, but it was mostly in singles that it showed up because of the court coverage demands in doubles. I could always sort of make it work. So anyway, there, Jeff and I are in the first round. We're playing these two six foot five brothers who both are on the team at Northwestern. I think humongous serves, um, we're both struggling a bit, probably me more than Jeffrey. And we lose the first set and we sit down on the bench and Jeff is got that look on his face. Like, I hate this. I can't wait to leave. And I'm like, Jeff, we can either pout about the fact that we're losing or we can come up with a plan and see if we can turn this match around. Well, we came up with a plan. It worked, and we ended up winning the tournament. We beat some very good teams along the way. But there was the other part that was so much fun besides what happened on the court. See, after we turned that match around, on the way home was a Japanese steakhouse, and we stopped there and we had dinner. And then it was one match a day type of thing. That's the way tournaments work. 
every time we won, we stopped at the same Japanese steakhouse and ordered the same food. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we were remarkably superstitious. I don't know how superstitious you were, but one other thing that occurred to me back from that era was the guys that wore the best clothes, like a brand new Fila outfit, and they'd walk into the tournament site. Immediately, I would say, that guy can't play. <laughs> <laughs> did did, yeah. you, did you have a similar type experience with that or no? With someone dressing the part but not being the part? Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, there was some guy, uh, I don't remember who it was exactly, but you probably remember that he was like a clone of Bjorn Borg mm. in the East. I mean, he had the he had that specific Fila outfit that Borgo wore, and he had the hair and the headband, and and the whole thing. And he was a he was a total caricature of uh, Bjorn Borg, right? Mm -hmm. And he was just a very moderate level player, but he was definitely there for the show. <laughs> yes, there for the show. But never really remember him beating anybody of consequence. Uh, so Scott, let's go back to you and share another one of your memorable matches with us, please. Um, yeah, so yeah, cause I have like three things, but, um, this match was in the, um, I think like the quarterfinals of the national 35 and over grass courts at, uh, at the metal club out in Southampton and, uh, my doubles partner at the time, um, Kirk Moritz, um, uh, he knew, um, some of the players from the uh, national uh, uh, tournaments, because he had been playing those during a couple of years that I hadn't. And there was a guy named Neil Newman who came out on the court and he had a knee brace on both legs and he had um, a, a, an elbow brace, I guess, on, on one of his arms. Uh, and he, he looked like, you know, he was like injured and, um, I said, oh, my God, this is like, this is crazy. And it was very distracting because you didn't really know what he was going to be able to do. So we'll get in. I'd never seen him play. So we get into the match and the guy was like a wizard. And it didn't seem like he had any injuries or any problems with mobility uh, at all. And I'm like, oh, OK. So um, I fight my way through the match, but I think I ended up being down 5-2 in the third set on grass and breaking serve on grass is not easy to do. So I just kind of dug in and focused really well. And by this time I had gotten rid of all the uh, distraction of his knee braces and back brace and whatever, all these things he had on. And I came back to win the match seven, five. Wow. And, and it was really, it's certainly one of the uh, most memorable uh, and significant um, comebacks that I had ever made because, uh, you know, I really, a lot of people thought I was heading for the lockers there uh, shortly thereafter. But I did head for the lockers, but I was going to go to the semis. <laughs> Fantastic. What a great comeback. Now, listeners, I also played Neil Newman one year in 35 national doubles, and I would only add to Scott's description that 
He also wore a headband that made it look as if he had just gotten out of brain surgery. <laughs> <laughs> and the listeners should also know that he was a psychiatrist. So this was all deliberate. All this stuff that he was wearing, he was actually injury free. He moved well. He he had no issues. But boy, did he come out there and try to psych you out as if he was the most decrepit human ever to play the game of tennis. And he was extremely talented, really good player. Yeah, yeah. It's there so many characters that you um, you meet on the tennis circuit, right? Yes, for sure. So, so what's your what's your next match? Um, my next match was from the early 80s, I think like 1983 or 84. And we had for Chestnut at uh, for long time going a very prestigious tournament at Chestnut Ridge called the Chestnut Ridge Pro Classic. Uh, at this time, it was uh, in like April or May. So I typically would go upstate to play a warm-up tournament and typically there are two things that happen when you go upstate number one you don't know any of the players so that whole process of assessing someone new and figuring out a plan um was it would fit right into that and number two the level of play typically wasn't as strong as right around the new york city metropolitan area so it was also right. a way i thought to build some confidence. So I head up there and I'm playing extremely well. Uh, and I end up getting to the finals, but lo and behold, who am I facing in the finals? But a kid who played number two at Clemson and during the season had beaten the runner up in the NCAA men's singles tournament. George Bezekny had beat him in the dual match. And this mm. guy was a lefty. I mean, pretty big, like 6'2", big serve, big forehand. It was outdoor clay. And so I go out there to play the finals against him. And I play really well. And I lose 6'3". So I'm sitting down on the bench. And I said to myself, what can you do? you're already playing really well. So I said, you don't have a choice. You have to play great. I went out and played great. And when I broke his serve late in the third set, I mean, that's one of the most priceless things when you're playing a guy who thinks he's got this from the moment the match started. And you see the look on his face when you're serving at 5-4 to shut the door and he hasn't been close to breaking you in that third set. It was sheer panic. <laughs> and <laughs> I did shut the door and it was one of the greatest matches I ever played because to, to respond the way I did to play better than well and just take it to a whole other place because I felt like anything less wasn't going to get the job done. I had to take that risk. Um, Right. That, that's a crucial one, because I think some of my players, sometimes they play pretty well and they lose a six, three or six, four set. And then they get they go the other way instead of taking more risk when they've assessed that their opponent is really good. They go to slow the ball down or slow the game down. And against the top player, 
going into slowdown rarely works. W would you agree with that, Scott? Yeah, I mean, unless you are deciding that that the slowing down is going to disrupt them in some way, um, I don't think that uh, decent players uh, are going to uh, feel any pressure uh, if you do that. Um, you know, maybe maybe something like where you start throwing in moon balls or something and you start to do something tactically. Um, but I think that you need to uh, up your game and start to go for uh, more aggressive and more um, effective shots because you now have played a set and played well, but you are lacking something that is needed in the match so that you're playing well enough to now win. So you always change a losing game or mm -hmm. a losing strategy and you never change a winning strategy. So you have to figure out what wasn't working uh, or what you need to do differently um, when you start that second set. You and I have talked about this in, in some of our other podcasts. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in this case, it was raise the risk dial and it happened right. to work out and, and, just the joy of achieving that was um, really, really special. Let's go to your next match, Scott. So this is this is a a conglomeration um, to some degree of matches. When uh, I was the 11th seed at Roosevelt at Roosevelt Field, the Eastern Indoors, and it was a huge tournament. And um, so, I mean, I was I was now. Um, you know, ranked in the top 20 in the men's East. And here I am seated 11th because I'm, you know, been playing like pretty, pretty well. Um, just came back from Europe uh, in the fall and um, started to have some good results. And so I get to the quarterfinals and I have to uh, play Ricky Meyer, who, um, you know, was the top seed. He had played for Penn and, you know, just was a very, very good player, very aggressive to play him on, on, on hard courts indoors was just like a joke. Mm -hmm. um, and I started, uh, I started playing very aggressively and attacking his backhand, but I, the biggest thing that came out of my matches was going into the, I had just lost to Ricky Meyer the week before, like seven, five, six, three, um, but so I had played a really good match, so I felt confident. But um, I had lost, and I don't even know where the newspaper got it because I wasn't really keeping track of these things. But they said in the newspaper that I had lost seven tiebreakers in a row. Wow. Coming into this tournament. Um, well, to cut to the chase, I won every tiebreaker I played in this tournament, and mm. two of them I won in the third set. Um, and coming down to, uh, you know, some real pressure points. But uh, so I beat Ricky in the third set tiebreaker. And then I go on to beat um, uh, Oberstein mm. uh, in, in a third set tiebreaker. And one of the greatest moments that I remember in, in my matches is on the first point of the tiebreaker, I go in, uh, you know, in, in those days, it was sudden death. You were playing a nine-point tiebreaker. Right, right. And so you start in the deuce side. Now you start in the ad side, right? Or well, no. the first point is no, the you, the first point you start in the But you start yeah. in the deuce side, and you're going to have two points. You're gonna yes. Two, 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 sir. Um, 
I hit a slice to he's a lefty. I hit a little, he's a little guy so fast and so like amazing with his hands. I hit a slice serve to his backhand. So out wide and I come in behind it and he hits this amazing little like slice with a little pace of it down the line, right at my feet. And I'm like, so in trouble. I go over there and I flick my racket. It's a backhand half volley cross court inside the service line for a winner. Wow. And I was like, so like in the, in, in the tree and in the clouds at that point. And I go on to, to win that tiebreaker and, uh, and win the, win the match, uh, obviously. And, uh, and then excuse I, me, Scott, just so our listeners know, I think Oberstein played number one at North Carolina. Is that right? Or, oh, or... I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, so our yeah. listeners know the quality of opposition you were up against. Yeah. And then, uh, and, and yeah. And then, and Meyer was at Penn and then I don't know where did Tannis go because I beat Bob Tannis in the finals. Tannis went to university of Georgia and Georgia, played number right. one and two, right. his entire, yeah. uh, college career, which was, which was huge, right? Huge. But, uh, only, only took me, I, I beat him in the tiebreaker in the first set and then I didn't play a very good second set and he played very well. And then I just crushed him in the third set to win the tournament. Wow. But, you know, I won a thousand dollars and I was like, uh, that was like a pretty big payday for us at those days, right? It sure was. Yes. And I was I was on cloud nine. So uh, those are those are some of my most memorable uh, times uh, in a tournament and in the match. Yeah. So Roosevelt Field was um, a pretty quick court, as I recall. Is that right? Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was lightning. Mm-hmm. It was good for me. I like that. Yes. Uh, so. Congratulations on uh, sharing that memory with us. I'd like to go to my number two now. And this is from 1990 when I, as a goal, I wanted to go back and play nationals again. I had been out for a couple of years with a couple more knee surgeries. And I decided that September, I was going to go back and play a couple of national tournaments down in South Carolina and Georgia. So I started training early because I knew I was out of shape. And my very first practice match, I played with this guy, Joe Rodiger, who was a nice player. He had been one of my assistants. And we went over to Bedford Golf and Tennis because their courts were open first. And not only did he beat me, I couldn't get to any of his shots I was so slow and I had to make a choice when I came home from practice that day and he had beaten me six love p.s he never won another set for me again either before or (laughs) since but I decided there's only one solution when you're not getting to the ball and that's run for every ball whether you think you're going to get there or not you take the first step and you begin and just say well What's going to happen here? Well, within a couple months of doing that, I was practicing and I got a great deal of confidence because I played with this kid, Robbie Javone, who was number one in the East in the boys' 18s, went on the following year to play number one at Georgia Tech. I played him at his home club and I beat him in straight sets. And his dad was a coach. And I ran into him in the supermarket about a week after that. And he said, what did you do to my boy? (laughs) (laughs) He said, he was, 
in the, on the floor in his bedroom, sobbing like a little kid. <laughs> um, and what, he was a kid. <laughs> yes, he was a kid. And then at, at the one national tournament I was at, the USPTA national, uh, I did lose in the second round. I didn't really play at my what I could do. But I got Bill Sipke, who I think you played against once on, on, on a grass court match. Did you play him? Yeah, he was I, think a, I played at Lloyd's tournament down in uh, at Forest Hills. And he was yeah. he was a good satellite player for most of his playing career. He was ranked I, I maybe know. three to four hundred. Yeah, I think so, I, I think I beat him in the semis down there to play James in the finals or something. Wow. So I played him in 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 any case. I asked him to play and his younger brother had beaten me pretty soundly a couple of years before when I asked him to play. He was like, oh, God, Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> do I really want to do this? But he consented to play, and I lost the first set, but I figured some things out, and I ended up beating him. I know it was just practice, three sets, but all this was adding to my confidence, getting ready to go play in this national event. Mm -hmm. So down at the nationals, in the first round, I look up who I'm playing, and it's a guy who had played my doubles partner, Jeffrey Arts, the previous year in the National 35 clay courts, and he had beaten Jeff in two sets. So I was like, boy, I'm going to have my hands full here because Jeff and I were pretty close, but I would have given him a slight edge if he and I went head to head. So anyway, I go out and play. I had my game going, and I beat this guy like two and two. And mm. afterwards, I told him the story, how I'd looked him up. And he gave me one of the great compliments. He said, Jeffrey Arts doesn't hold a candle to you. And I was like, <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> poor Jeff. So that, well, yeah, poor Jeff. But I was, that's how well I was playing. And so I get to the round of 16 against the number one guy in the country, Zan Gurry. This is his favorite court, outdoor clay. And I didn't have a very good first set. And right at the end of the first set, I missed a return of serve that was pretty routine. And he sort of snickered to himself like, ugh, what a waste of time. And I was like, you shouldn't have done that, buddy. You just woke me up. <laughs> now, the second set, as it ends up, I ended up losing 7-6, I think 9-7 in the tiebreaker. Mm -hmm. but I was so dominant in that match that when I was, I had a couple games where either I had him 1540 or I was serving at 4015 and I lost both of those games four mm -hmm. points in a row at those moments. Yeah. If I had won just one of those points in each of those games, I would have beaten him six, two. That was my level. And what really was another great source of joy for me is because it was the number one seed, it was in the stadium and all the other players were watching if they weren't actually on the court. So I had a great audience. In fact, the guy who had beaten me in two pretty comfortable sets the week before at the USPTA National came over to me and said, if you played like that against me, I would have had no chance. So again, <laughs> again, it's, it's, it's the thing of being on a big moment, but able to produce my tennis. I 
I, even though I lost that match at the end of the day, I felt so good about my level of performance um, that I put in against a top player who uh, pretty much, I wouldn't say invincible, but it was very rare that he ever lost on an outdoor clay court. And, and one thing, yeah, that's a, that's a great story, Bob. And uh, you know, to play him that close and uh, to make him a little nervous is a great thing. Cause he was a little, you know, he was a little off sometimes. <laughs> totally. But see, I had this plan, his best shot. He had other good shots too, was his inside out forehand. He would take control of the court and just bang you around from there. Just very similar to watching a pro match today right, right. where three or four into the backhand and then one a little shorter and then bang it into the forehand corner and finish you off. But yeah, I he had was a, a lefty. Plan. Did you tell everybody he was a lefty? No. Yeah, he's a lefty. No, he's not. Wasn't San Gary a lefty? No, totally a righty. Oh, I thought I thought he was lefty. Okay, uh -huh. no worries. So in any case, I had a plan, which I'll relay to everybody. I did not let him hit two inside-out forehands in a row. Mm. So as soon as he hit one, I took the next shot, and it wasn't hit hard. It was usually into my backhand, inside-out, getting me off the court. I would float it deep into his forehand corner, and that gave me, number one, I didn't hit it that hard. I had time to recover and get my court position. And number two, I took him out of that inside out position. Right. So often then he would take his forehand and smack it across to my forehand, but I was moving well at that time. And then I'd line up that forehand, powder it down the line to his backhand and charge the net. He was freaking out. He was <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I, that game plan, and it it really works. Anyone who wants to find up a find a way to nullify a player with a great inside out forehand, you can't let them establish a base there. So, Bob, um, we're getting we're getting right near the end of our podcast. I just want to mention one thing uh, that goes back earlier in the podcast. Uh, oh, I'm I think sorry, that Scott. We but I, I, my best story, we haven't gotten to. Oh, I'm sorry. Go. So we're going to do what we did last time, uh, stop and restart, and then I'll merge oh. the two files, if that's okay with you. That's fine. Okay. So please go on. I'm sorry. Oh, so, you know, um, I think that our level of tennis was better than we thought it was. And we showed that at times, just like as you played Zangari so close and I beat these guys who were like these top college players. I mean, I played for, a you know, a division three college, Franklin and Marshall. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I beat uh, Don Patron, uh, but he was a freshman. I was a senior, but we weren't, we weren't playing the kind of competition that Georgia was playing and, and Chapel Hill and everything. Oh, for sure. So, so, so Scott, we, I think we're going to sign off here and then get back okay. to it in just a minute. Okay. Got it. Okay. Hi, all. We're back. And uh, Scott is going to let me go ahead with my favorite story of my tennis career. And this goes actually all the way back to high school. Uh, in my junior year of high school, I went to Columbia High School in Maplewood, South Orange, New Jersey. I'd say I was maybe somewhere around 
in the top 15 or 20 in the state. And my opening round, the opening match of that season, my junior season, I played the player who ended up being the state champion of New Jersey that year. And I lost to him six, four in the third. And then the last match of the season, we always played that team twice. He beat me six, love six, one. <laughs> so I went through a huge, I've got to assess and do something different discussion with myself. I didn't have a coach. And I decided that it was very important that I teach myself how to serve in volley that upcoming season so that I would be a much more of an attacking player coming into the net to win. At the same time, um, and I did do that, I played some doubles once a week, believe it or not, but learning to serve in volley, doubles is a great way because you don't have as much territory to cover. So it enabled me to get a little confidence without really putting stress on myself right away. But Maplewood South Orange Columbia High School was a very academic-minded school. So they had a rule that no sports team could compete in both the state and the county championship because it took too much time away from academics. Now, I must admit, I mean, I was sort of naturally did pretty well in school, but I wasn't putting all that much effort into my academics. I was about playing my sports, which I was the captain of the soccer team and tennis. So there was a big public meeting, board of education. The room was packed full of people. And I went there with the captain of the basketball team. And we said, look, make a rule that says if we do something exceptional, we can play in both of these tournaments, not just one. We shouldn't be forced to choose. So they made a rule. They, they gave in, they listened to the kids. It's incredible that yeah. they did. Progressive. And, no wonder you're a progressive. Yes. <laughs> they listened <laughs> and they said, if you win the conference undefeated, we were in what was called the Big Ten Conference. If you win the conference, you can play in both. And the reason is tennis players, we thought that was important was because the state championships were separated by size of school. So we were group four, the biggest. Then there was our rival, Milburn, group three. There was a group one and two, and then there was a parochial division. So there were actually four divisions to compete in. So when I talk about my match now in the state championships, it was within the group four, but I wanted to be in the county championships also because of those uh, other three divisions, two of those the champions would be in the county tournament and we could sort of say, Hey, look, we also beat them. We are the overall champions by winning both events. So in any case, I, um, it's Memorial day weekend. It's 95 degrees down at Princeton, which had a host of courts and they were, they were running the event for all the different divisions down there. Uh, and I was playing Kevin McCarthy, who that year happened to be ranked number one in the East in the boys 18 and under and went on to play number one for four years at the University of South Carolina. And it was a third set and I was trailing one four 1540 on my serve second serve. And his strength was his forehand and I aced him out wide. 
went on to win that game and get the match back to five all, at which point I started to suffer from severe cramps. So uh, at one, uh, I was taken off the court and there were no time limits then, Scott, in terms of how long do you get to recover from an injury? People would just sort of say, you know, are you okay or whatever? So I was sitting in the shade, I would guess for about 20 minutes and they gave me a couple of salt tablets, but get, get a load of this. They said, whatever you do, don't drink too much because you'll get even more cramps from in your stomach. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> there I was completely dehydrated, but not allowed to drink anything. <laughs> so right. This was really the stone age, I must say. But it does, yeah, I mean, and the, it, the water doesn't go into your system as fast as you think it might. It's not as fast as you can drink it. It takes a little while to go in there. It, for sure. So finally, McCarthy comes over and says, you know, we're either going to do this or not. You, you got to get back out there. So at five all, I go back out there. And as soon as I hold on to the racket, my right hand goes into a complete spasm. So <laughs> what it means is I can't change my grip. I have to sort of take one grip fits all and play like McEnroe without switching grip in between shots, which was not my game at all. But that's what I did. I played with one grip. Like and a continental? Yeah, I played with a continental, like a McEnroe style grip. So I could do a little of everything. And I still, um, my legs weren't really cramping at that point. I was still, I wasn't as fast, but I was still looking to get to the net when I could. That was my game. So um, this was before tiebreakers, and I ended up winning in the third set, 13-11. Oh, my so God. I go up to the gym there at Princeton, and I'm in the shower, and my entire body goes into spasm. I mean, every single muscle I had was cramping at this point. Oh so God. they take me to the infirmary. I, I lie down on a, uh, on a bed, and within 10 minutes, a doctor comes in. He hears my story. And he gives me a muscle relaxer as well as some water to drink. Well, the finals were that afternoon. Oh. <laughs> I had to go down and play the same day. So my teammates wheel me down in a wheelchair. So I show up at the finals in a wheelchair. What are you and doing? Are you pulling a Neil Newman? <laughs> no, not really. I really was. You know, I, know, I did. But I mean, that would be like the other guys are like saying, oh, yes. what a joke. This is just a total ploy. <laughs> well, this the kid who I was playing, he was a sophomore. He was a nice player. He had seen my match in the morning and he came over to me in oh. the wheelchair and he said, you are an amazing player. What a match you had this morning. It's too bad you're not going to be able to play me this afternoon. And I said, no. I'm going to play you. There I was <laughs> sitting in the wheelchair. <laughs> and about 10 minutes later, they called the match and the kid came over and he said, okay, we're, we're out on court so-and-so. And I said, well, I, I'm, I'm ready whenever you are, just get someone else to warm up with. So he got someone from the stands to come down and warm him up for like 10 minutes. <laughs> then I came out on the court and he said to me, you want to hit a few? And I said, no, I'm ready. So, <laughs> why so, did you why did you why did you do that well 
I was a senior and I just had this feeling. First of all, he had seen me beat the best player in his, you know, he was from the same region of the state. So he knew this guy. So he was psyched out by me to start with. So I just, I think it was my instinct to say, you just act like you're the big kahuna here and you're going to get something for it. So anyway, (laughs) my biggest thing was, though, I didn't want to get to the state finals with my team and default. I just felt like we had come so far. At the point I went out on the court, I didn't really care if I lost six love, six love. But I didn't want to have a walkover when we're that close to winning the state championship. So, so, you're, so Bob, just back up a second, because I don't think we explained this, uh, and I'm not sure I even know, but uh, this is a team championship. So you're each player, how many players from your team were competing? Exactly. That? That's a good point. There were two singles players, myself and another guy, and our yeah. doubles team. And going into this final, I had not lost all year, and our doubles team had not lost all year. So if I were healthy, you'd be saying – between me and the doubles, we're going to get this done. Okay. So I just go out and I start playing and I can't really run because my legs would cramp up, but the problem with my hand was gone. And what I found was I was able to serve and volley, but I would walk to the net. So I was like Frankenstein. I'd serve, (laughs) I'd walk two steps I'd make a volley, I'd move in two more steps, and then by the third volley, I was putting the ball away. (laughs) And it wasn't until, I mean, it didn't start out quite that easy. I was actually down Mm 4-1, and my number two guy was at the back fence picking up a ball. I was at the back fence, and he said, how are you doing? And I go, I'm down 4-1, but I just realized I can beat this guy. And I came back and I won the match. Uh, it, oh, it, was, it was it was quite a um, quite a story. But what I said then to my number two guy, who hadn't won really any big matches that year, not a bad player. I said, "How are you doing?" He goes, oh, "I just lost the first set. This guy's really good." So I said, "This doesn't sound amazing, Scott, but sometimes something clicks." I said play to win in other words this was a guy who had had some lessons and he cared about how he looked when he was playing okay and i was basically saying to him he had this like spalding metal racket which he could serve really he was a big guy six four really bomb his serve but you should have seen once the ball got into play a little bit he was slicing and dicing and giving this better player junk like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> he came back and won. So wow. we were state champions. Nice. nice. And of all things, our doubles team lost. Oh, oh, so we we definitely needed so, all the all the pieces was, of the puzzle. It was miraculous uh, to come together. Um I don't know how you played a match though after taking a muscle relaxant. Was it was it a quaalude? I have no I mean, idea what he I gave mean, me. So you could, you could have been out there sort of like you know rubber legs loping around like oh I don't really care you know. Well, I was definitely <laughs> relaxed. 
I will. I, I remember that part because, again, I wasn't expecting to win. I wasn't putting a whole bunch of demands on myself other than I don't want to default and I'll, I'll do the best I can. Um, but then subsequently, you know, we were back in the era of marijuana, to, you know, and so the school newspaper in the sports section, the headline is, Chevior leads Cougars to state championship on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> oh my so, God. So the, this, this, <laughs> this comes out in the state in, in the school paper. Next thing you know, I'm in one of my classes and uh, some kid comes and says, the principal wants to see you. And I was like, oh I my God. I thought they were going to say the superintendent. <laughs> So yeah. it ends up he only wanted to say congratulations. What a tremendous achievement. But I thought, you know, I was going to get roasted like you were taking <laughs> drugs and competing. Yeah, maybe I should like run out of the school now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, that's tremendous. Anyway, that match, I think, really set me on a different path with respect to tennis, because once I was pretty much a state champion. I didn't win the individual championship later because fact be told, um, even for a couple months after playing through the heat and the cramps, I just wasn't the same person. I, I, I couldn't move the same or anything. Mm. Um, it really had like a intermediate term effect on me, but it did mm. when I went to Rutgers, I went out for the team as a walk-on. They didn't really recruit in those days and um, was playing number one on the freshman team and then number one and two as a sophomore, junior, senior. So, But it, it gave me a different idea of who I was and what my expectations were when I would go out on the court. For example, freshman year at Princeton, Princeton had this guy, Harold Rabinowitz, who was ranked fifth in the country in the 18s. He only played freshman tennis, then he quit because he decided he wanted to be a doctor and he needed to study. But we played, he beat me maybe six, four, six, three, or something like that. And he goes, I'll tell you, what a surprise. My coach told me Rutgers sucks. <laughs> so, <laughs> he goes, I had a I had to really play tennis out here. So, I mean, the fact that I got to you know, be competitive with someone like that was was largely from this one day, I think, where I found this inner reserve of getting me through some really tough conditions on the court. Um, yeah. So it's a fantastic memory. So I think I think that what we can take away from that also for our listeners is that your self-image increased tremendously in the positive direction, obviously, after that, because you overcame these almost insurmountable, obviously not insurmountable, but, you know, on paper, you know, I, I, I'm surprised that your I assume your coach was with you from school, right? Down at the match? At the tournament. Weren't you, wasn't your coach there? Yes, but he was and a football guy. But wasn't he telling you like, hey, Bob, really, should you play? Look at you. You've just been like in the infirmary for, you know, whatever. Should you really play? Maybe you shouldn't play. 
But he's no, a football he, coach. Maybe he's saying you better play. He was more into like, if Bob wins this match, I'm going to be coach of the year. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That was but, more um, his thing. But do you think that, you know, psychologically you, um, you gained a tremendous amount because now you were, um, you know, looking at yourself possibly in a whole new light in terms of your abilities and how tough you were, you know, and how you could, uh, you know, uh, work your way through, um, you know, situations, let alone just a, a difficult tennis match. Yeah. I mean, I would almost say, I mean, we'll never know, right. That I don't think I would have ended up with a career as a tennis professional. If that serve at 1540 second serve down one, four, hadn't hit right on the line for an ace. I'm not sure what it, the, the whole rest of everything would have happened because I wouldn't have been state champ. I maybe would have been less enthusiastic about playing in college, et cetera. Right. And um, it's, it's amazing to think possibly a couple of inches determined a whole big part of my life. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, but I think you probably were building on that when you went to Rutgers. Um, and, you know, it, it, it reminds me the fact that, you know, I told everybody that I went to Europe and played uh, on the uh, qualifying part of the ATP circuit uh, and didn't lose and didn't win. I won one match in uh, actually in the five, five or six weeks that we were there against another American. So I don't even, I didn't even count that it seems, but when I came back, I had a different idea of what you had to do to be a good player and to take it seriously and to train differently. And I had a different self-image and I didn't care that I hadn't won matches. It didn't really mean anything, but all of a sudden I was starting to follow um, a game plan that I was learning from all these top players. I mean, I was watching the matches uh, in the tournaments uh, constantly for hours every week because I was out of the qualifying in the first round. So all, other than sightseeing, I was there like watching, uh, you know, accomplished players. So I was watching Borg. He was there, Stan Smith. I practiced with Stan Smith. Um, I watched uh, Bob Hewitt just dismantle Bill Lloyd, like the most embarrassing thing you ever saw uh, in Vienna. Mm -hmm. And, and, and we, and Tom Carey and I, we would, and, and with some of the other players, we would um, analyze these, matches and analyze what we saw on the court and I was my learning curve was as steep as you can imagine and here I was in my mid-20s so all I had to do was go home to New York and start executing and, and I did and never looked back and uh you know the rest is history so um yeah it's uh you, you come to these places through different means but getting to that spot is uh, what makes a huge difference for your future it does. So uh, in terms of self-confidence, there's no doubt that doing well in that high school match and being on the team at Rutgers helped some of that. Um, but maybe uh, it got a little out of, out of whack in terms of I didn't think all the rules applied to me. They were just for other people. Do you know how athletes get that idea sometimes? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cause their <laughs> ego, cause the ego starts to blow up. Right. Right. So 
I I was um, getting into that dangerous territory for a while, and I'm I'm glad I've come back from that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, wow. Scott, thank you so much. Uh, that was fun, listeners. Bob. I hope you enjoyed our stories, and we will be back within a couple of weeks with uh, another more of an instructional um, podcast. Not that there might not be valuable lessons in what we just shared with you today. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, thanks Bob. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.